the competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussion with the best players on the planet. Your hosts, Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an Art of War podcast. I am your host, Nick Nonavati, and joined today by my special guest, Art of War coach, Space Marine and Power Army player, aficionado, John Lennon. What's up, what's up? I am happy to be here as always. Of course, of course. And we are joined today by another Art of War coach, Mr. Archon Scari himself, also known as Ridvin Martinez, coming all the way in from the frozen norths of Canada to come with us on our podcast. How are you doing, Mr. Ridvin? I'm alive and well, being kept adrift by a thousand souls. Truly iconic. Um, <laughs> Hello, everyone. How are you? Thanks for tuning in, by the way. I'm really excited to sit down and chat with both of you illustrious fellows while uh, all of you make sure. Grab a pen, a paper, a little pen, and a pencil, and uh, scribble some notes down. Let's do this. Awesome. Before we get too deep into this podcast, though, I do want to take a couple minutes to talk about something really exciting going on with Art of War. We are doing an Art of War Streamhouse tournament, which was actually, I guess, going live right now for you patrons and has been going live for everyone else um, listening to this publicly. So... Uh, the way it's going to work is that me, John Lennon, Richard Siegler, and Mark Perry all submitted two different armies, two different factions to the Streamhouse RTT. We bracketed them up on Challenge, which is a bracket prediction software. You can actually take the bracket we are created, like we know our round one pairings, follow through and make your own predictions about who's going to win. And you can enter a free contest to win free stuff. All you have to do is go in the contest rules, which we'll post in the links with this podcast. And uh, interact with us and our sponsors on social media. The more you like, follow, subscribe, the more raffle tickets you get. And you can win all kinds of free stuff, like an entire table set from Big Bear 3D, Warp Fire minis, gift cards, and Indominus box sets, Table War fat mats, and so much more, along with Art of War coaching and all that good stuff. So, you know, interact with us, interact with our sponsors, and literally get free ship dropped off through your doorstep. What's not to love? All right, I think that's enough sales pitching for one day. Are you guys ready to do this? I'm ready. Ready. Of course, you, know, you have to do the plugs for the plug god. The plug, plug, god, the plug god must be appeased. Absolutely. All right, Mr. Ridvin, why don't you start off by rattling us your Dark Eldar list that you've created. They've only been up for a little while, but I know you are uh, have been probably busy beaver writing lists over there. So what do you got for us? Very busy beaver. Let's just say that, um, first of all, I want to caveat this with, this is not the only way to build a Dark Eldar list. There are like at least three different ways to build a Dark Eldar list, but then each way that you build it can have a totally different combination of like obsessions and units, and they're all going to be good. So, you know, take it with your own, like, you know, take what you will, leave what you will, but ultimately create something that's going to help you in your local meta or in your goal-driven journey to kind of build the list that you're going to have the most success with. Um, but yes, yeah, so let's dive into what I've been running, which is a, a list that's running off of the triple patrol detachments. So uh, I really like the triple patrols. I think giving an additional two command points uh, because when you're Warlord and being worth zero, so starting your list building process with four command points is, is quite useful when trying to like buy extra relics, extra Warlord traits, or using like pre-game deployment stuff or uh, things like that. And uh, so I think give, having that wiggle room is excellent, especially with Dark Elder. When you say four extra command points, do you, do you mean 14? Because that's how many lists start. So that's what that I meant, period. two extra yes. command points. So you start with 14 command points. Which is four more than ten command points. So again, it'll, it'll add it up in the end. <laughs> Excellent. If anybody's paying attention, 14 command points to start with. <laughs> um, now it is the first that now you can make the patrols in this case in any sense. Um, Cabal, Witch Cult, uh, Coven. You can mix and match. You'll have like two patrols of Coven and one of Witch Cult, or you know, two Witch Cult patrols and one of Coven. I've decided to go for three patrols, one of each, Coven, Cabal, and Witch Cult. So the Cabal detachment is a Cabal of Blackheart, 
And we'll discuss this more in the like technical strategy section, but I've been toying with Poison Tongue as well. Um, with a Master Archon, with a Blast Pistol, Usk Blade, and the uh, Hatred Eternal, and the Gin Blade Relic. So he's a little... My man, Scarry. I love this Archon. He is a beast master. Not he actually, is killy. He's very, very killy. He's like my budget Drazar. Um, and we'll get to like, uh, you know, and he's now that he's got like a three damage weapon that's AP three that could potentially go to AP four. Um, you know, it, he has done work for me. Rerolling hits and wounds, especially since the change to rerolls becoming core only, you know, really changes how he works to be like just as efficient and even killier than he was before. And he's fantastic. I absolutely love how much damage this little character can do. Now, the Master Archon is, is just there to put in 10 Trueborn. So I have a unit of Cavalite Warriors that's 10 strong. They have been upgraded to Trueborn. Now, what this does, of course, makes them Ballistic Skill 2+. plus. Uh, it gives them plus 1 leadership and also means that they don't suffer any negative hitting modifiers when they're shooting, which or Ballistic Skill modifiers. So watch out, Kalexis' Assassins. Just saying. Um, like it... Like those true ones. Always hit on twos with two blasters and dark on twos. That's really so, good. Yeah, two blasters, dark lance, and a phantasm grenade launcher. We'll get to why I put in so many phantasm grenade launchers uh, later in the list, but it gives you. They're just it's just another mortal wound output thing, which is pretty cool. Um, then we have two units of five incubi. I'm a big right. fan of the incubi. I think they can kill things very very well. They've got high volume of attacks for the number of models in the unit and they have a great damage output potential um and so if you're building a drakari list i highly recommend that if you haven't thought of incubi yet that you really consider and look at them and, and consider putting them in your list oh, i think incubi are great um i think we can go with um maybe a little quicker explanations of each unit and just leave room for lots of questions to come afterwards i do want to get through all this good stuff there's a Honestly, it's, a, it's fantastic. And I know we do have one hour only for this first section. And then the second section, whew, that's going to be where all the spicy stuff is. Oh, but yeah. we do have a raider in the list with a shock prowl um, as well. We've got a second patrol detachment, which is Cult of Strife now. So I have access to all the Book of Rust Strife supplement detachment rules. Uh, so the stratagems and all that good stuff, which we'll get to in more detail later. But... I have made the succubus in that detachment a master succubus for show stealer, which is a fantastic trait. I have given her the razor flails. I've made her the warlord to give her competitive edge and the dark lotus toxin. Now, am I? Oh, powerful. I don't think that's going to last. Like caveat, like that's probably going to get FAQ'd, so you don't get like fifty attacks or so from a one one lady or whatever, or thirty or whatever it is that you can get. I do think that that's going to get switched. Um, however, uh, uh, precision blows instead of competitive edge is another one of my favorites. So if yeah. you're listening to this and that's been FAQ'd, I would definitely go for precision blows to get 14 attacks that on sixes cause two mortal wounds with the Dark Lotus, which is just great as well. Uh, when you give them, give her the plus one combat drug, basically. Plus one attack. Uh, then I'm running two units of ten witches, uh, each with uh, Hecatrix, that has um, uh, has a Phantasm Grenade Launcher, Hydro Gauntlet Shardnet, and Razor Flails. I originally put Blast Pistols in there, but the Blast Pistols go out for the Razor Flails. So it's two units basically the same, except one unit has an Agonizer and one unit has a Power Sword. And the Agonizer is running the Morvane's Agonizer, which is essentially an auto-hold something in close combat that's not a vehicle or Titanic, which is fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing relic, for sure. <laughs> I like that uh, you're rolling these combat drugs too. I'm really excited to hear about that when we uh, when we dive into the the reasoning yeah, we'll, behind all these choices. We'll get to that. Like uh, I've been the games I've been playing. I've been playing quite a few games. I've been rolling pretty much all my combat drugs. We'll get to that in a second. But yeah, absolutely. We'll see. We'll you you'll get to hear my experience with it so far. Uh, then we have nine reavers with three heat lances, three grav talons, uh, ten hellions with a phantasm grenade launcher. And then a third patrol detachment of Dark Creed. Leading that is the Booga Booga Homunculus. Uh, he's a master homunculus with uh, the Fear Incarnate Warlord trait, which is awesome. Uh, 
Uh, ten Hemoxites with no upgrades. Two units of five Mandrakes, uh, which are incredible. Two Kronos. One of them has a probe, and two both of them have Vortexes. And then three additional Raiders with Grizzly Trophies. Um, and all in all, that's 2,000 points. I gotta say, uh, I, I have the privilege of having this list in front of me to scroll through. It felt like it just kept going. Every time I thought there was the end, there was still more units in this Dark Elder army. There's just a lot of stuff in this list. And honestly, I like it. Yeah, there is a lot of stuff. It's one of the things that, uh, you know, playing Dark Eldar for so long, you need to have units to throw away. So having extra units is always useful. And one of the biggest things that you might notice in this list is I haven't really upgraded all my raiders very, very heavily. I've kept them relatively cheap with one, maybe two upgrades, or one upgrade in this case each. Um, and that's that's key because it's very easy to spend a lot of points on a raider that dies to like bolters, right? So you <laughs> you want to be careful. So I'm trying to imagine how this army deploys and plays on the table. You've got all these raiders. You've got trueborn. You've got Hemoxites, mandrakes, reavers, hellions. It's it's like a battle force. There's a little bit of everything on it. Tons of deployment options with your screaming jet stratagems or transports in reserve. Tons of outflanking options or deep striking options with your other stratagems and transports. Like it's almost overwhelming how many different ways you could try to play this army. So what's like a hitchhiker's guide to Dark Geldar right here? So this one is about deploying in like you have the thing about ninth edition, at least had as, as it is right now, is you have to be able to do you have to be able to sort of threaten that first turn or be in a position to really do something on the first turn in case you win the role to go first in the GT mission pack. But you also have to have sort of like the resiliency, maneuverability, and like flexibility to be able to go second. And that's one of the things I love about this list and playtesting it is that it has elements in it that will threaten you on that first turn or sort of get in your way or be annoying. You've got jet bikes that, that can move very, very quickly if you need to like sacrifice them in the first couple of turns. You have a uh, the Cabal of the Black Heart read, a Raider in there with a shock prow that um, is designed to essentially just threaten something on that first turn, with like a long bomb 22-inch move with the, with the sails and a charge to get some mortal wounds on something or tie something up on that like key first turn. And all it's designed to do is early game, sort of like disrupt the enemy, late game or mid game, really put the pressure on and hammer things home. And then late game have enough left to sort of solidify your position on objectives. So how does how do you decide, I guess, what parts of the army to throw forward and and when and how much? Do you just blitz the guy with everything you have full force assault army? Or do you try to play the range game? Like what makes you decide when to commit what units? So because, and that's the key to the way that I build my lists as a, at a personal level, every single one of my lists you will find is very versatile. It has a bit of everything. It can be aggressive, defensive, it can be passive, it can be uh, like active in, in the phases of the game. So the way that each thing gets used does vary based on the variables that we see, terrain, deployment, mission, secondary objectives, and like faction matchup that you're playing against. But as a rule of thumb, something that I've been sort of using is, as much as you want to use the Reavers and Helions early in the game, I've been finding keeping them back and using them on that third turn, second to third turn, tends to yield the best results, while putting pressure on your opponent with Raiders filled with Witches. And then, of course, Mandrakes going into the mid-board to stop any pre-game deployments and things like that, as well as doing things like scramblers or putting up banners in like that mid-board area um, to disrupt the enemy game plan. So almost like your army kind of approaches the game in waves. The first wave is like your Mandrakes doing preliminary encounters and raising banners and setting up those first engagement off front points. Then the Raiders and Witches kind of come in and do their thing and provide some fire support and counterpunch and assault people. And then it looks like the Reavers and the Hellions do the cleanup at the end. Is is that kind of the general? Ideally, yes. Ideally, that's what it is. And of course, it's a it's it's a little bit more in depth than that because the witches in the second wave is perfect because they have access to holding you up in combat and things like that. So they're not necessarily as throwaway of a wave as you might think. They're more of a disruption wave. They do damage. They tie things up. Prevent things from falling back. Force enemy resources to deal with them in the fight phase. 
right? And then from there, you can count, you can then put continue to lay the pressure on with the Reaper jet bikes and the Helions that have the speed and maneuverability to start on one side of the table and by turn three be on a completely different side of the table, killing all the backfield stuff. Now, with all these options, uh, you know, it really looks like you have the ability to get in people's face and, uh, you know, apply a lot of power. Do you normally find that you're trying to use this pressure to just table people or are you just using it to uh, kind of take over the battlefield, play the mission or maybe even a mix of both? I think if you um, don't play the mission as a Dark Eldar, you're playing the game as a Dark Eldar wrong. Like Dark Eldar have one of the, yes, they have the damage output, but they die just as quickly as they used to. So always putting pressure on the objectives is a priority for me when I'm playing. That means, um, and it's one of the biggest reasons I have the Dark Creed homunculus in there with the Fear Incarnate. Being able to shut off objective secured from a unit you know, really helps turn the tides in that primary game, especially in the mid-board objectives where the fighting tends to be the fiercest You know, mid-game. Mid yeah, I, I definitely could see that. So on that note, I, I would definitely have a lot more questions about your army list, but since we're on the mission train, why don't we kind of go from there? How does this army, like what kind of secondaries do you typically try to go for? Is it fluid based on your opponent? And what's the general approach to scoring primary points with the overall very flimsy Dark Eldar? Um, so that's like a three-part question there. Um, so the first part of the question, uh, my list is designed to get me engage in all fronts or domination, depending on the mission that I'm playing and the opponent, to get me deploy scramblers. And then as a third one, you know, depending on who I'm playing against, it can be any of the Dark Eldar ones slash, you know, assassinate, especially assassinate, because we're one of the only like, armies that can really get assassinate well, especially with those uh, Reaper jet bikes and Hellions. But, um, you know, that third one is the one that's matchup dependent for me. Sometimes I go for the mission one. Sometimes I go for one that uh, my opponent sort of like gives me on a silver platter. It just depends on who I'm playing. Um, as for the primary, the way that we play the primary um, is just stopping people from scoring a lot of the time. You know, having objective security units or being able to take it away from the opponent means that you can kind of push your opponent. A lot of my strategy involves pushing my opponent to scoring five primary points um, in like the second, third, and fourth turns in a lot of the a lot of the times. And then on that fifth turn, if I am going last, my fourth turn is spent making my opponent score zero on primary because they score at the beginning of their fifth turn while keeping enough in the tank to score 10 to 15 points on the final turn. If I go first, my my aim is to try and stop my opponent from getting away with it while trying to score 15 points as early as possible throughout the course of the game and that usually tends to me sacrificing more of my army but it means that i get ahead enough that then my opponent can't catch up even if they score 15 at the end of the game so it kind of sounds to me like you view the primary more like a differential than just trying to score your points where you're really focusing on you know you don't have to get a 15 every single turn you're just trying to get some points and then use your army and your maneuverability to more take down your opponent's score rather than just trying to run up your own. Is that kind of accurate? Correct. And I feel Dark Eldar are one of the armies that can do that very, very well. We have speed, maneuverability, lots of obsec, lots of little units everywhere. So we tend to play, and it's one of the things I learned from playing the, the game in 8th edition with Dark Eldar, was that you know, and in early ninth edition, even with the old Dark Eldar Codex, you know, I, I the army didn't have the capability of really killing anything. Like it, there were certain builds that could kill stuff, but if you played against like Custodes, you played against you know like a bunch of Terminators or you know Blight Lord Terminators, where like you couldn't really kill anything. So the I got really good at learning how to play the game without having to kill anything at all, and it all came down to stealing points away from your opponent, which then meant. Um, that that's translated very, very well to this new codex, because not only does that playstyle suit the army so well, now we can actually kill things. And that combination has been, like, explosive, and I love it. Yeah, I think the, the Dark Eldar, the way the codex has been written right now, it really feels like it's it's been the same style forever. They really feel like Dark Eldar. Very powerful. Everything is super deadly, glass cannon style, super fast. But if you screw up with it, it's going to be very punishing. Which I'm glad the Codex embodies the way it kind of is meant to be played. I think it's cool. Yeah, I just like how many different facets this army, and honestly, the Codex overall has. You know, obviously, we're we're dealing with a new army here, so we're definitely 
early on in the exploration process, but it just seems like there's so many different ways that you can approach the army. Um, you've definitely gone for, you know, the more, you know, multifaceted uh, view where you're taking a little bit of everything, you're keeping, keeping your options open. But I definitely think that you could take uh, this codex and try to lean into one cell or the other and still have quite a lot to work with. 100%. Sure. And that's the beautiful thing about the codex. Now, you have to, be, you have to remember, this, this list that I've built right now is, has so many moving pieces that someone who's learning how to play the game, right, or that's learning how to play the faction, you know, would probably pick this list and love elements of it, but might have a trouble applying some of the other elements that I put on into the list itself, just from experience and practice. So I always recommend, you know, use, take this list, use it as a framework, but really sort of like, if you don't like mandrakes, use something else. Like even though mandrakes are awesome. If you, if you want smaller units of witches, just switch it and have smaller units of witches. If you want to have all your raiders in the Cabal of Black Heart detachment, move all the raiders. If you want to do the dark techno monsters and switch the points around to have like super liquefy guns, then you can kind of make those changes easily to kind of suit your play style. And that's the key. It's, um, you know, use the concepts as a framework, but make sure that you're playing with something that you know you're going to use. Like you want to, to go and like flame a bunch of people with two damage plus one to wound liquefy guns. Awesome. That's going to do a lot more damage, it, you know, like right then and there. And if that's the style of gameplay that you enjoy, then this codex allows you to do that. And I think that's, that's a as a faction, that's great because it, it's going to cater to a lot more different play styles. With my playstyle being more of a balanced approach, where this list, and we'll discuss this more on the second in like the second section, doesn't have as many bad matchups as another matchup that might be a little bit more skewed, right? And it's designed that way. It's designed to be more of a take all comers, um, so it's not necessarily amazing against any one type of matchup, but it doesn't have as many terrible matchups either. Yeah, I definitely see that. You can see it in their unit selections. It's not just let me min-max to get as many awesome Dark Lances and Liquifiers in here as possible, or let me spam out 60 Witches and 30 Incubi and charge people off the board. You've taken a little bit of everything, which is what I like to call the toolbox style, so that you know every time there's a problem, you don't need to get out the entire toolbox to solve it, but you have a tool in there, which you as a general need to figure out how to use it to solve said issue. So, like you said, there's a million different ways to build Dark Elder Armies. Let's pick apart yours a little bit and why you made some of the specific choices. Uh, I'm just going through top to bottom here and kind of picking out anything I see as interesting. You went with Cabal the Black Heart, which is, I, I think a lot of people kind of view as the auto-take here. They have a really awesome stratagem. They get CP regen. They give you rerolls to hit. They're in power from pain higher. Um, you mentioned Poison Tongue as an alternative. What's the thought behind Poison Tongue? So... I've been, it's funny, I've been playing a little crusade where I decided to start playing Poison Tongue. And it has given me some really cool ideas that I want to sort of apply to a more competitive style list. But there's, there's two things that I've been really looking at. Number one, increasing the range band of the poison damage with raiders with splinter racks, with a, like raiders. And so instead of running, say, Trueborn with blasters, just running a bunch of like two units of cavalry warriors just with rifles in raiders with splinter axe, and being able to have them at 24 inches just hosing people with like poison, three plus poison, basically. Right? So keeping them at a really long distance, not needing to get up close to rapid fire. So it changes sort of like the range bands of from where I can do damage with the list and sort of changes the dynamic of that trueborn unit from a very uh, anti tank like you know, version to a more just anti anti infantry, just force you to take lots of saves style unit, which doesn't really work as good against like Marines, but against like Tyranids or stuff like that, it would actually be like crazy dangerous, right? So yeah, or against like Slanesh or whatever. Like being able to keep that like twenty four inch range band and be like, I'm gonna be just just far enough to be annoying. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. so almost like you've teched both your Cabal the Blackheart and Trueborn and rerolls to hit lances. You've kind of teched to be more anti-tank oriented instead of more anti-infantry oriented. But if for in the matchup section or if the meta was a bit different, you could easily just switch that over. Right, because you know if and then that's the thing. Like doing something like that would sort of change the the way that I look at the list itself. Because you know doing that then allows me to put the anti-tank elsewhere in my list. So I'm looking at Scourge with Blasters, or I'm looking at, you know, um, like 
Reaver jet bikes with heat launches, or I'm looking at, you know, Talos with heat launches or whatever. So it, it, it allows me to sort of change the dynamic of the list and based on like which way I want to layer my, my thought process with the game itself. Now, um, the second part of that is because I've been looking at the Void Raven bomber. And um, the, the, the stratagem for the Kabbalah Poison Tongue allows you to redeploy units or even put them into reserve for no extra like cost. So um, the Voidroom Bomber is one of those things where it doesn't really do a lot of damage. However, I'm going to ask you, John, as a, as a player, and I'm going to ask you, Nick, as a player, like, you know that this bomb on a 4-plus will do D6 mortal wounds to, like, enroll for every unit within six inches of the point I pick, right? It's terrifying. So, as a Marine player, or as a Sisters of Battle player, or as an Eldar player, do you risk bunching up behind your big building. Honestly, that, that's really going to change uh, how I have to deploy. Uh, frankly, uh, I look at the Void Raven like a Vindicare Assassin. If I take right. one, I'm going to roll a bunch of ones. And if someone takes it against me, there's going to be a bunch of sixes. Okay, yeah, they're going to like nuke <laughs> So that's the thing. So I'm looking at in conjunction specifically with the Void Raven Bomber, which is like a giant psychological weapon that 50% of the time is going to go first and drop its bomb. And the other 50% of the time, I get to put it in a reserve so you can't shoot it. Yeah, I do like the Poison Tongue Bombers. I think at that point, I wouldn't run less than two just to make me feel like I'm getting my money's worth out of the strat. But definitely even one for the psychological threat. You know, No, like, no, I, I'd be... I'd be the, the way they would raise, you, you pay the two CP, bomber goes into reserve, and then you can redeploy both raiders filled with with cablets into a more optimal position. Oh, so that's kind of how your detachment is built. I got you. Correct, right? So it's designed to, you know, maneuver those units around, right? So so in and of itself, that's why I would take Poison Tongue. It would just kind of change the dynamic a little bit and enough to sort of change sort of like the play style and make it make the role of the Cabalites just a little bit different. All right, so talk to me about these Trueborn. I know they've been in basically every other list you've written with Dark Elder thus far. I haven't seen many people taking more than just the five main Cabalite squads. I know John and I are both have been doing that in our Dark Elder builds. So uh, what is it about this Trueborn unit? Well, other than the nostalgia, Nick, uh, nostalgia um, of uh, being able to run Trueborn again, <laughs> which is definitely from Edition's past. Us bandwagoners well, don't know about that. Yeah, yeah, you, you bandwagoners wouldn't appreciate the nuance of having your Trueborn with four or five blasters or whatever it was, four blasters and a Venom. Um, no, it was... Okay, so Trueborn, as soon as it said hit on twos and ignore hit modifiers, I was, I was sold. I was like, that's worth 10 points every day of the week. And what it does is it gives me three very reliable anti-tank weapons. Um... So three very two blasters and a dark lance. Now you could go for the blast pistol on the sergeant. I've gone for the for the phantasm grenade launcher instead. Now what it does is it just guarantees that you're going to get some damage through to a tank or whatever. And I have used them very effectively to kill rhinos or to kill mortifiers or to kill just like orc trucks or random stuff that like you just the, hitting on a three plus with a blaster like. The, the math changes considerably, especially with Cabal of Blackheart, where you can just re-roll one of those dice. And I'll tell you, having a Dark Lance that hits on twos that can potentially re-roll that has a minimum of four damage is money. Uh, you're trying to kill, like, attack bikes or things like that. Like, it's just, it's excellent. And then it, it offsets, like, the dense terrain or any, like, psychic powers of minus one to hit. Or it's just, it's just a reliable mathematical, like, vector that you can kind of go, okay, I'm going to get these hits in, and then I'm going to get this many wounds in. So it really helps like judge the damage output that I need for a turn. Well, it's really interesting, because it's, it's very similar in cost and functionality to a Ravager. Correct. Ravager with triple Dark Lance is 140, this unit is 140. You have worse range on your two blasters and worse damage on your two blasters when compared to Dark Lance, but you hit way more accurately. Now, when you factor in the fact that this unit probably rides around in a raider, the unit goes up by 90 points, but you also get said raider. So how do you compare this unit to taking something like a Ravager for fire support instead? Oh, it's 10 times better. They're OPSEC. They, you know, they're 10 bodies inside of a transport. They can do actions if needed. Like, it's 100 times more versatile. Plus, they, you know, can support 
the Archon can support them if they ever get cracked out of their transport to go around and get rerolls and things like that as well. You know, come turn th uh, three, if it's about if it's about the Blackheart, you know, they the old they have a, a five up invulnerable save. You know, so all in all, they're they're just you. What you're paying for an extra like points, you're gaining in versatility. So it's not just a one one way of using this list, you know, uh, or this unit. You put them in cover. Use strike from the shadows. They they have a two up armor save against small arm fire. Like you know, a lot of stuff you can't do with a ravager. You can do with a unit of ten cavalry warriors. No, I, I love the way you phrase that, and I do agree. Actually, it's just. When you look at it from a mathematical standpoint, this is like an inefficient way to get dark lenses into your army. They're more accurate, but they like have less range and less damage. So what a trade-off. But like when you say it like that, you have an OPSEC unit in games where you don't want dark lances, your ravager feels really bad. Like what are three dark lances do doing versus 100 or 80 orcs? You still have 10 bodies, a lot of attacks, a lot of shots. It's versatile. It's OPSEC. It can do actions. It's a toolbox unit. So you know, not every game requires the raw force of Dark Lances. So when you don't want that, instead of having a Deadweight Ravager, you have a versatile unit that can do something else. And it's not like, okay, it's worse at being a Ravager than a Ravager from a pure damage standpoint, but you have so much other stuff doing damage, you've made up for it elsewhere. I, I think it's a great addition. What do you think, John? Yeah, honestly, uh, I love it. I love just having more OPSEC stuff. And I also just like that it's extra bodies. Because, you know, you, you say, yeah, it's like a Ravager, but it's a Ravager inside a Raider. So they have to kill the Raider first, then they have to kill seven Cabalites before they've even hit the actual damage part of it. But again, you know, it's a Ravager that also puts out 14 Poison Shots a turn when it needs to. Just having so many different little options in here, really, this just defines Dark Elder to me. Like, yeah. this unit is Dark Elder, because everything is like, ah, it could have been a little bit more raw power, but it actually has a lot of raw power anyway, and also five other options. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why I feel it's worth it. Plus, you know, being that they hit on twos and, you know, with the Archon nearby, they're re-rolling ones. Like, it's just a little bit of damage that you can, that, that kind of helps that mathematical variance, right, uh, in, like, the key moments. And a lot of the times, that's all you need. You just need a little bit of, of math to go your way, and you need to, like, as a Dark Eldar player, you're always trying to, to flip the math enough against your opponent with minuses to hit and invulnerable saves that their damage output that they thought was going to happen doesn't quite cut it a lot of the times and then when it's your turn you want to try and like make sure that you're using your tools to kind of put as much damage in a concentrated area as you can to kill just enough to like not overextend yourself to like start peeling pieces away from your opponent that will allow them to win the game yeah that's a really good way to put it um, I still want to go through a couple of the other tools in here, and I've got to call out one of them. There is one Raider with a Shock Brow in this list. Oh. Just one. One Shock Brow doesn't even have the Grizzly Trophies. I know you, you mentioned you like to only have one upgrade on your Raider. It's one or two. All, one or two. Yes. One or two. All of these have Grizzly Trophies, and this one has a Shock Brow. Talk to me about it. Tell me what's going on here. So that's my... If I go first, this uh, Raider's going to be a really annoying unit. <laughs> <laughs> It just, it gives me, it just, look, it, it's a stratagem. Shockbows are strat, so at most you're using one per turn. Um, you know, if anything, you could potentially give chains if you wanted to it to give it some extra attacks. But that's a unit that I can go, great, it's going to go on the on the, on the the front line. And if I go first, I can move it 22 inches up the board because it's Cabal of Black Heart. It can advance and charge with the enhanced sails. And then I can charge something and tie up a unit or charge like, a unit of Repenti that didn't get put in a transport or like just be annoying. And then inside of it, you could either put like witches or you could put like racks or something inside to just like once they crack it open, then they have to deal with the next unit. And by the time that happens, it's just there as like a distraction card effects, right? It's just gives me an option to throw something up a flank or do something annoying that the opponent's like, okay, it did mortal wounds to me. Like I have to kill it. There's units inside that it, it then gives my my army enough of a leeway that then on the second turn when I when advance and charge kicks in that you know it's sort of disrupted my opponent enough that I get to hit them on my terms right and I think that's a very important part of playing Dark Eldar is kind of off putting your opponent's balance and it really helps with that yeah I think that's a that's a really interesting little tech piece like even then I, I've thought about taking a random shot prowl on a raider just to unlock the strats off in case it's a weird weird situation where I want to do some mortals why not it's five points but um 
I never thought about just deploying online, going 22 inches and charging with it aggressively turn one. That's that's nifty. Got to keep people honest with that. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, what, you've got manticores or whatever, you know, you better, you better, <laughs> you better measure that Raider. <laughs> you <laughs> you know, measure like, the Raider, otherwise <laughs> it's going to charge your manticores turn one. You know, and especially on some deployments, right? And it sometimes can like, you know, a lot of people put out, you know, little five unit assisters of battle or something like behind a building or whatever. If that guy, if that raider can charge and, you know, all of a sudden rolls a couple of three ups, right? And then just like kills a unit or, or severely damages a unit, you know, it, it's just about disruption, right? Like you can, if you disrupt the opponent and then if you go first or if you go second, you know, you can just, it might die or whatever, but then it just soaks up a lot of firepower that it didn't target your like witch raiders or whatever, right? So it's there's like a it's a two and two. Ideally, behind you put it behind a building, right? Ideally, but yeah, that's kind of how that works. All right, I want to move on to these witches. Uh, the the witch detachment is, is pretty straightforward. Cult of Strife is like the go to. No, they got that succubus uh, supplement. They also have that succubus. You took the broken one with competitive edge and dark lotus toxin. Might get changed. Might not. Um, if you I, don't I, would, know, I would bet. I would. I would. I would. I like. I, it has been. It has been brought up to the team. I'm pretty sure. Let's see. Right. Let's see how well, it goes. I, I'm surprised. I'd be surprised if she wasn't addressed because she is one sixty point model or seventy five in your list yeah. who can pump out like literally forty attacks or something. So that's a little silly. Um, I just. I think the easiest solution or the thing that historically I would think would happen is that the 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 extra attacks that she does won't get doubled by the shark by the razor flails. I think that's yeah. like the kind of what I would assume would happen. Probably. Yeah. But I do want to talk about these Reavers and Hellions, because those are like super duper interesting. And units that we've seen people talk about, I've definitely seen a lot of people talk about Hellions. I haven't seen a lot of people actually running them. Uh, I've seen a lot of people talk about Reavers. Haven't seen anyone doing them, especially not in a nine-man unit. What what do these do? What why are they here? Well, I've been using them since before they were cool, okay, Nick? <laughs> so they just transitioned into my list. Um, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. They, it, the Reva Jet Bikes and the Hellions provide very, they're two extremely versatile tools within the list that I've built, right? You can use them as shock troops because they move very, very quickly. They can find an isolated part of the enemy army and pick on it, like bully it, right? And literally like kill it. And now the Dark Eldar have an incredible like extra attacks, good AP in close combat. And then with Cult of Strife, incredible stratagems, right? So you can literally, if your opponent's not careful, they risk having a unit of nine Reaper jet bikes, go in, kill like a little five-man unit or 10-man unit of infantry or whatever, and then get a four-up invul safe right for the rest of the turn with for the for the whole the rest like until the start of the next turn which then makes them incredibly hard to get rid of with conventional means considering they can be like minus one to hit and if you gave them the right drugs you know toughness six right so you know not only do they have they just have a lot of potential they're incredibly fast and they have the ability to kill things you need killed helions two damage a pop kill things like nurglings really well they kill things like intercessors really well, right? Or anything that has four wounds. Um, you know, they also, and then Reva jet bikes are my like anti satan killers. They will nuke a satan from full health in one turn. Sounds ambitious. How are they doing all that? So you can fly over them, do mortals in the movement phase. Then you can shoot the satan uh, to do. Uh, shooting damage. Then when they charge, they have graph talents, so they can do mortals in the charge phase, and then they attack them in combat. So it's not even like you attack them in three phases, where each phase you have to do at least three wounds, because you know that you might not do three wounds in the moon phase. Correct. You know, oh no, my plan's falling apart. But you have four different attempts at it, so it's like very likely you actually do all nine wounds and just knock it out. But not, not, not very likely. Like, uh, like almost. You'd have to roll terrible for it not to go in your favor. <laughs> super very likely. Uh, Maximum well, get, very get, super likely. Well, not you know you 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 know on average you get about yeah you just have to do like you three wounds in one phase and then two wounds in every other phase, right? Maximum very super likely is what it sounds like. All right, so I'm looking at all these witch cult units, and you mentioned the drugs. 
Correct. And you mentioned the toughness six potential on Reavers, but I've got to say, I normally see people just pick plus one toughness. Yeah. You, however, the maniacal archon that you are, have chosen to roll your combat drugs. Because are we just are we just playing one less D chess than you? We're on three D chess, and you're on five D right now. What Look, is going on here? If you're starting with the faction and you want your witches to do a certain thing every time, your bikes to do a certain thing every time, pick your drugs. Please pick the plus one toughness drug. That's what I did for the longest time, like making sure that my bikes were T5. The thing that uh, there were two main reasons, especially on the bikes and Helions, that, that made me roll now is the fact that every drug is usable by them. And I love it. Um, blade veins are now plus one strength, which means they're not a set strength four anymore, which means that the plus one strength drug helps them and brings them up to strength five, which you can then boost to strength six with high, like hyper stim backlash, which is great. And secondly, the plus leadership combat drug also confers plus one ballistic skill. And when I have another unit of Reaver jet bikes hitting with heat lances on twos, it's like having another unit of trueborn sniping like units with like short range melt guns at 18 inches. And it's fantastic. So I can get by behind you rolling for the Reavers and the Hellions because they do shoot. They'll make use of that ballistic skill upgrade. They, you know, like you said, toughness is awesome on them. And so is all the other drugs for the most part. Witches, though, I, I always give my witches plus one strength unless it's something weird because being strength three just does not get anything done. How are you living with strength three lich life? Well, you know, if I, if I were to roll, like the thing about rolling two is that one of them is likely going to be more useful than the other one. So I just leverage the one that I like the most, you know, whether, whether it's plus one toughness or whether it's, you know, plus two inches of movement. It allows me to change how I'm going to use that, that specific unit in the game. Now, yes, the strength mathematically is better. You know, you can wound vehicles on fives, et cetera, et cetera. You know, another thing I'm keeping in mind is, you know, being cult of strife, I have access to stratagems like pre-roll wound rolls. You know what I mean? Where, you know, in a pinch, I can try and get some extra damage in that way. And a lot of the times, you know, it's the Reavers and the Hellions that are doing most of the damage because they're base strength four anyway. And it's the Witches that are more of that disruption unit where I'm very picky about what targets I, I send them up against. And they're in conjunction with the Archon and the Succubus, who are the ones that do most of the damage anyway. Yeah, I can see that. You just your army is like a very experienced Dark Eldard person's army, you know. You want tools, you want to see what happens, and you want to be able to leverage them. Uh, I totally would know what you mean when you said like a, a newer player or newer someone newer to Dark Eldar might want to plus some, simplify it a bit and just pick your yeah, drugs. Just pick plus one attack or plus yeah. one strength for the witches. Right. That's usually the best. And then with like the Helions, you could potentially go for plus one attack as well. I, I would highly recommend that. And then for Reva Jet Bikes, you know, if you want them to be shooty jet bikes, play take the plus one ballistic skill. If you want them to be tough jet bikes, take the plus one toughness. You know, you can really kind of like, and that's a cool thing that really helps when you're um, like building a list is you, especially with witches, is you, you can kind of pick and choose what you want with them. Uh, I'm rolling because I'm experienced. So I, I like, I really, I appreciate having two bonuses on each of my units. Right. It just makes them better at two different things. Yeah. Right. And so that for me, I leverage both things in each game that I have instead of just having one thing that I'm going to leverage in every game. I can see it. I mean, it's going to suck, of course, when you want plus one strength because you're fighting vehicles and you get plus one ballistic skill and plus one weapon skill and it's turn three before you know it and you don't need plus one skill. That's going to feel bad. But the opportunity is there, and of course, like you said, you can leverage things like I didn't want plus one, or I wouldn't have chosen plus one toughness, but I got plus one toughness, or some plus two move. Those are very useful ones, even if you didn't plan on using them. Kind of. Thing. Yeah, and another thing is hyperstim backlash boosts both things. Oh, right? that's really cool. Right, that's really. Cool. So if I get like, and, and that's the thing, every once in a while, I'm gonna roll like, like the best of both worlds and get like plus strength one attack, attack plus one strength you know what i mean and then or plus one toughness plus one strength or whatever it is and then literally be able to go okay for two cp i get to double both of those on this unit and now it's like super nasty yeah and with so many different witch units the odds that one of them gets like a killer combo is actually pretty good and then you're just gonna get so much more out of that stratagem if you just use it on the one unit that's right for the job in this game I like right. that a lot. 
Like, yeah. and, you know, if I get like plus one weapon skill on a unit, for example, like I know they're going to get plus one to hit a lot of the time, but, you know, uh, on turn three onwards, but it means that I can be a lot more aggressive with that unit. I can start engaging them earlier on turn one, maybe turn two, where their their volume of attacks will make a difference. You know, or if my opponent has something like a miasma or something that uh, confers a minus one to hit, like then I kind of can keep that unit in reserve to combine it with the plus one to hit and then have the weapon skill two plus to send into units that have negative modifiers to hit or have the potential of negative modifiers to hit. Considering that there's going to be a lot of Dark Eldar players out there that are jumping on the bandwagon, you know, having options that can, like, you know, trump lightning fast reflexes later in the game, you know what I mean? It's, it's a good, it, it kind of gives you that edge in that mirror match as well. Yep, I can see that. It's just, it's more tools in the toolbox. I love it. Speaking of toolbox, let's move on to this homunculus detachment. Homunculus coven detachment, I should say. <laughs> Dark uh, Creed. Dark Creed and the Booga Booga. Talk yeah, to me about Booga Booga. <laughs> what is this guy doing? Every time. Why does he get a name? What, what, who is Booga Booga? It's the Yunga Booga homunculus, okay? If you would have watched my four and a half hour like live stream with JT and Brad Chester. We came up with the Uga Booga homunculus, and it was fantastic. Um, now, the, uh, it, the Uga Booga homunculus is essentially a Dark Creed homunculus with the Fear Incarnate um, Warlord trait. So he, he scares the Alpsec out of people. That's literally what he does. He just goes up to a unit, rolls three dice if you beat the unit's leadership. Um, they lose objective secured they fail any actions they were doing and they cannot start any actions in their next turn okay well that's pretty solid taking right. away obsec always good you've got obsec in here even better it's also end of the movement phase so you can move advance get yourself somewhere actually well situated and then use it not like the necron ones or the whites or the the revolute tenant stratagem ones where it's like Maybe I'll get to use this if you finish your turn relatively near me. This guy is very proactive about it. Uka yeah. He can go up to you and just like shut it off. And now the reason he's in there is because I hate Necrons so much. <laughs> and I I don't like uh like nine obsec scarabs running around or twenty Necron warriors that count as forty models sitting on my objectives. Especially yeah. considering that the way that we that I play, which is something we discussed earlier, is about leveraging that differential for primary points. So something that has a lot of OPSEC or can leverage OPSEC in that way tends to be a much tougher matchup for my play style. And that homunculus single-handedly fixes that problem for me. Yeah, I like it a lot. I've done similar things in some of my uh, Space Marine lists. And for the exact same reason, you know, uh, I... I you do see a lot of the Obsec Necrons. That's probably the most popular uh, popular uh, sub-faction for them. Um, other than that, um, it looks like uh, you did actually upgrade uh, your racks to Hamak sites, which cannot be nostalgia-motivated, because I remember that those didn't exist before. Correct. What is the deal with these guys? Well, the upgraded uh, Hemonculus and the Hemok sites are 40 points that I'm toying with right now within this list. And that's the, that's the beauty of testing and playtesting and whatnot. Um, so far, they've been great. They haven't died in a single game yet because of the fact that they're Hemok sites. Like ignoring the first failed save, getting the five up invulnerable save right off the bat, and then starting on turn four, they go up to a four up invulnerable save, which then is like the Prophets of Flesh Rex, which we all love from back in the day. Um, so all in all, they've been mainly designed for my backfield objective holding, and it is a little bit expensive for backfield objective holder. However, you need to put some serious thought into taking them out or you're never getting my backfield objective. So Figure it's not just like a little five unit of Cablite Warriors. On, I guess, the note of your whole detachment, Obviously, Uga Booga, the Hemonculus, is really, really powerful. Taking away OPSEC and stopping actions mid-action is amazing. Well, and as you that's, said, that's amazing for like mid-game where somebody's like doing yeah. vital intelligence or siphon power or whatever, and you can literally go up and go, no, your action fails. You can't start it again next turn. Right. And that's because, and I literally moved this raider 22 inches up and spooked you. Yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing how good this is for primary uh pushing around the opponent and that kind of stuff and secondly it's, it's also for like you know 
end game stuff. You know, oh, you need one more banner to put up so that you win the game and you only have one unit that can put up a banner. I'm going to spook you. You can't put up a banner end game. Or you, you need that unit. You put that specific unit into position to move into my deployment zone to get scramblers. Uh, no, they're not going to be able to even start the action next turn. Right. So there's just so many things that are just that 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 one mold does well. The Hemox sites hold you back field objective. And just in general, Dark Creed gives you that minus six inch leadership bubble. Right. Which is and gives you and then with Grizzly trophies, which are a minus two, two in, uh, three inch leadership bubble. It's a minus three inches, a minus three leadership within three inches, which then doubles really well with all the phantasm grenade launches that i have in the list which then means that those phantasms that i put in really serve as like like smites right because you have one two three there's like four of them in the list yeah it's very subtle how you've you've not gone for the obvious stuff i know a lot of people myself included are all about them liquefier acts because dark necromancer liquefier acts are all the rage these days but you've leveraged some very interesting options here. The minus one leadership from Dark Creed, stacking with the Raiders, Grizzly Trophies, synergizes super well with the Phantasm, synergizes super well with the Homunculus for the top. And uh, the Incubi. And the Incubi for the fight last. It's all one big moving piece, kind of as you said in the beginning. So there's a couple more questions I want to go through before we move on to part two and talk about how you apply this enormous toolbox and all your different matchups. Before we get into that, let's talk about this two-man Kronos unit. Kronos are something no one talks about. What? Why? What Kronos? Talk to me about them. Okay, so Kronos uh, themselves are like a Talos. However, they don't have the guns like a Talos, and they're much cheaper. <laughs> um, so they... The, that is, I will admit, that is one part of the list that I am toying with right now. And it's one of those parts that you can pull in now. Now, for the longest time, I was using... Their flamers and guns is strength three in most of my original play test games until somebody kindly pointed out to me that their guns went to strength five. So they're no longer the piddly flamer guns that we knew from back in the day. They're actually quite respectable guns. Even in like a dark, a dark techno monsters, like those guns become, you know, plus one a wound and two damage. They're really dangerous and they can kill a lot of stuff as well as liquefiers for being strength five. Uh, but the reason they're in there is for two reasons. For one, you get like an additional reroll, like you get a reroll wound roll bubble. And secondly, they're a bit of a tougher sort of like anchor if you want to, you know, uh, like protect a character or something as you move up the field. And they're a good counter charge unit. Late game, you know, they have an ability where for every model they kill in close combat, they can bring a model back to life within six inches. So, and it works yeah. really well with like, you know, my Incubi or my my witches getting stuck in later in the game against, like, they won't kill a lot of stuff, but especially against chaff units like Guardsmen or Grots or, you know, or Cultists or whatever it is, like, they could get stuck in or even Poxwalkers and literally all of a sudden start killing things and bringing back, like, models mid to late game that I'm going to, that are really useful for me to, to win the game at the end part of the game, which forces my opponent to then deal with the Chronos, right? And then it just gives me another toughness bracket, right? They're another toughness bracket. They, I've got some more flamers, some more guns that have the potential to do damage too. They also come, come around with the leadership debuff if you need it. And overall, it just it's, they're, they're incredibly fast with advance and charge as well, which I found out in my test games. You know, being able to move eight inches and advance and then charge on top of that means they can tie up stuff, but they're durable enough to soak up firepower if they're tying up tanks for example all the way to you know bringing back uh, witches or healing themselves you know if, if they've taken some damage yeah i like that a lot um and the big thing is that they're still not that expensive and frankly they're kind of durable still you know even though they're not traditionally durable in the context of dark eldar you know having you know two models that are t you know t6 or seven mm -hmm. uh with a three up save a five up female pain it's not going to casually die. And again, you know, 165 points for two of them really isn't that much either. It's not like a huge investment, but I can really see where a little bit of utility could come in, especially in that late game. I've actually yeah. thought about running solo Kronos just with the Flamer and my Dark Technomancer. Um, mm -hmm. Just because it is it is more 
decent firepower on a platform that's like not easy to kill. No, um, it's not. And you, they're easy to hide. They're a small footprint. You know, the homunculus. And it also gives me access to using the homunculus's special ability, which is healing a monster, right? Because I don't have any grotesques. I don't have any talos. So, I, I, like, that would be me not using one of the abilities I put into my list. You know, every time at the end of the movement, he could heal a Kronos D3 wounds, which used to be a stratagem. Now it's just free. So anything that does shoot a Kronos and doesn't kill it, you know, is just shots that could have gone into Reaver Jet Bikes or could have gone into Helios or could have tried to kill a, a Raider that didn't, right? And, and, and it's just another layer of that toolkit that doesn't seem like, too much at first until the homunculus is like literally walking around these chronos you can't shoot the homunculus they move up to an objective that has like an obsec bodies on it or whatever he he scares them with fear, fear incarnate and then the chronos can go and kill a few models heal themselves and then take the objective away from an obsec unit or something like that you know like it's there's some cool synergies in there as well yeah a lot of small stuff that isn't surface level but when you dig into the nitty-gritty uh, it's there. And I guess that's our job. So here's my final question for you, Scarry. You talked about the Mandrix being great. I think Mandrix is great. John thinks Mandrix is great. Everyone thinks Mandrix is great. Why are Mandrix great? Because I've been using them since before you could walk, Nick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> now, um, uh, Mandrix, okay. So as I said, like there's been problem issues with like certain matchups. And we'll talk about matchups more in general. But one of the other problem matchups that's not Necrons that have everything they're OPSEC were armies that could put a lot of pressure on you up the board. So in Victor Tactical War suits with or like pre-game deployments and, and pre-game movements up the board, ad mech dogs, things that are just really annoying to deal with. And or nerglings in the mid-board taking all the objectives that then you have to deal with. So what that does is Mandrakes takes those options away from your opponent pretty quickly, especially at least on one side of the table or the other. And what it does is it gives you breathing room so that you don't have to deal with a giant army of Necrons stepping six inches from their deployment zone before the game starts. Or you don't have to deal with that big unit of Death Company moving up the board at you. Um, you know, It kind of holds your opponent where they are to give you those 24 inches between deployment zones is like sacred space where you're like, no, you stay. And that alone, being able to deploy Mandrakes out of your deployment zone is incredibly useful. That breathing room I find for Dark Eldar is super important because with space, you can use movement. And if Dark Eldar can use movement, you're already ahead of the game. And then secondly, if you go first, they can just pop back into reserve. And so they're great for scoring engagement points early on or putting down scramblers in the mid board and then like disappearing and then coming back the next turn and just being annoying or move blocking something or like they're, they're all in all another great toolkit unit. And they don't really require a lot of support. Plus, if your opponent's not careful, like five Mandrakes have a decent amount of attacks, they're good AP, they can shoot stuff and have the potential of doing mortal wounds. So they're good at like mopping up the final wounds on like a tough unit, like a vehicle, or killing like a little backfield objective unit that your opponent decided to neglect and thinks will hold up against five to ten mandrakes. I just love that they have two different roles that they can use anytime, and such you know good different ones as well that are genuinely useful. Anytime you have the ability to get multiple uses, especially you know these niche value uh, adds out of one unit. I just throw it in, even though, you know, what, 75 points for just five wounds doesn't sound that great. It's fragile. It, it could go in transport, but it usually doesn't. Usually something else is in there. Yeah. But when you look at all the different rules and all the different, you know, roles that it adds to an army, 100% worth it every time for me. Yeah, I think they there might be a, a bit more of a mission play unit and just utility instead of raw damage output or raw stats in any way. But that's what your army's made of. That's the bread and butter of Dark Eldar. They are there to adapt and play whatever they need to, fill whatever roles they feel like it to get the job done. Scary, thank you so much for coming on. This has been enlightening. Even, even I've got some new ideas for my Dark Eldar army. I love always, it. You know, that's always the enjoy thing. talking to you. You know, you you just need to go and apply it. And I'm always, I'm always, you can always reach out there, Nick. I appreciate. It. Well, if anyone else wants to reach out, where can they find you? 
you can go to theartofwar40k.com and I'm one of the coaches on the coaching team. So make sure you check me out over there. I've been doing a lot of list building and and uh, and uh, like list consults and stuff. So if you want some help and want to bounce some ideas around, reach out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Everyone listening to this, what are you doing if not going over to part two immediately after this to hear about Scari and his crazy Dark Teller Army? That's the ultimate toolbox. So you can figure out how to apply each tool in every specific matchup. We break down every meta army in the game and how Scarry's Dark Eldar is going to play against it. So we'll see you all over there. Thanks so much for watching. Listen, everybody. We'll see you later. Want to learn even more? Enter the War Room. Gain access to six classes per week. Coaching games. Strategy sessions. Have the best players in the world at your fingertips. TheArtOfWar40K.com